Hi, I'm Erica Ramirez, founder of Illy and host of What About Your Friends, a brand new show on the Ringer Podcast Network dedicated to the many lives of friendship and how it's portrayed in pop culture. Every Wednesday on the Ringer Dish Feed, I'll be talking with my best friend, Stephen Othello, and your favorites from within the Ringer and beyond about friendships on TV and movies, pop culture, and our real lives. So join me every Wednesday on the Ringer Dish Feed, where we try to answer the question TLC asked back in the day, what about your friends? This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's the fucking moron who said the biggest number. It's Andy Greenwald! Hold on one second. I just have to rummage to fruition. Just let me, let me just finish. Andy, and then once, we're ready to go. Once more unto the breach, uh, we talk about succession. This will inaugurate our usual Sunday night potting about what has been probably our favorite show of, of the decade easily, but over the last five, six years, uh, Succession began its final season tonight. Uh, we're coming to you on Sunday, and uh, we're just so excited to talk about this show. It's been one of the great joys of the sort of, I would, if I call it latter period of this podcast, does that mean we're ending? <laughs> It is, but now's not the time to announce it. The twilight of our podcast? No, uh, it's been one of the great joys to talk about this show with you. So, we Chris, get remember the-, the time we went to a diner and just talked about the afterlife together? That was when I knew <laughs> <laughs> that this and podcast I was, wasn't forever. And I was doing security for you at the time? That's a great place to start, man. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting about this, I want to get into a breakdown of the, the actual episode, but I thought a great place to start just generally speaking, before I, I I do this sort of plot synopsis as we get into this fourth season, is did you detect any slight whiffs, aromas of finality? You know, uh, there was a recently some new stories about mm-hmm. Sarah Snook not knowing that it was going to be the final season until she basically got the scripts for the end of the the the, the end of this season. Obviously, some chatter about like could there be spinoffs and you know what what would happen with that and and Jesse Armstrong is he, he was seemed to he seemed to be unequivocal at points and then equivocate a little bit about whether or not there'd be more here but look man like that was the thing that was sort of hanging over this episode in which not a ton happened but you couldn't help but read what you were referencing that scene where Logan is out to dinner with his security guard Colin for his birthday and he winds up alone in a diner somewhere mm-hmm. off of Central Park and is musing about whether there's life after death yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, it's such a joy to have this show back. 
And what a joy to do it with you in this last season of our podcast to do it together. Um, we're going to say this a hundred times over the course, if not more, over the course of the next uh, nine, 10 weeks. But the writing in this show is so exemplary. It is unparalleled. It's so muscular. It's so alive. And every single line, even the throwaways that you don't catch until the second or third viewing, which the show merits, are so considered. And because of all that, and because of how clear that was even in this um, season premiere, and Succession is a show that historically starts slowly and then builds and builds and builds, I'm actually feeling like taking Jesse, he's been on the pod two or three times, we can call him Jesse, at his word. Which is that he has so said... So he, he's kind of graduated into like Kate, you know, that zone, where if you come on twice, we get to call you by your first name. Yes, although weirdly, Elizabeth Moss graduated to Lizzie after like one time she called in. That may have been presumptuous. It's, it's Notice she hasn't come back. Um, I'm beginning to take Jesse at his word, and he said this in, in some of the pre-release press, that he wasn't certain it was over until he was writing the scripts. And I believe him. You know, I don't think he's being coy or cagey about it. I think that he, the way that he writes and the engagement and the presence and the awareness that he has of these characters and their relationships to each other and the spinning plates of the world around them, I think they told him by where they were and what was left for them to do. And it's incredibly exciting. I think that you and I both had a similar reaction to the episode, which was joy and pleasure, but also a kind of very honestly pleasant bordering on bittersweet sense that this ought to be the last season mm -hmm. that there needs to be an end game for it to have. And this is a tough word to use, but for it to have mattered, you know? Yeah. You know, this shows, uh, the gravitational pull that this show is in where it's pulling it from being this hilarious satire of the grotesquely rich <laughs> and the power brokers of the universe and pulling it into kind of being a prestige drama that is also an incredible portrait of the human condition in mm -hmm. a variety of different ways has been kind of low-key the most fascinating part about it to me when you're talking about it almost as like a text. Like, I think various characters on this show resonate with me in different ways and then it reliably cracks me the fuck up five or six times an hour. But the, the sort of tension between pathos, satire, and comedy and drama that this show experiments with is not always the smoothest. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it, it sometimes has like these sharp turns, but is easily like the most fascinating experiment on display in modern television to me. And the ability to take something that has its sort of comic roots in the larger Iannucci kind of school of, you know, Veep and the, in, and, and the thick of it in the loop universe and transposes that onto this very, um, very specific Mayu of like upper, 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 mm -hmm. far atmosphere class of, of uh, you know, robber barons is just amazing in and of itself. But then to find these people underneath that he obviously has a tremendous amount of affection for and that these actors all, mm -hmm. I think, love. Like, I think one of the things that was great about seeing those first scenes of people in, you know, in media res, like doing their thing, you know, was like, Shit, I bet it was really cool like to be back and doing Kendall, Roman, and Shiv in a room together, kind of breaking each other's balls and talking about the future and everything. And and it, it just you can feel like a certain energy and, and you can feel a comfort with the characters and all the performers that I really love. But 
Yeah, I, I always love looking at this show and watching it kind of go back and forth between its outright brilliant comic timing and and portrayal of these people and then also these moments like like the final few moments of this episode where you're just like, oh God, this is such an incredible dramatic moment. Well, here's the thing. You, you, you ding me fairly for falling back on my old chestnut about shows teaching you how to watch them. But let me give you the flip side of that coin, which is that when the die is cast and shows are ending, you know, by choice or with the knowledge that they're ending, that's when all the versions of the show that you thought you were watching or that maybe you were enjoying or talking about with your friends or memeing, they fall away. And all that's left is the intention of the people making the show. You can no longer, you know, just sort of be spinning theories and questions and taking pleasure in the sense that this might keep going on forever. And that is when I think authorship does matter. Now, that's a whole separate conversation because I think even yeah. Jesse is a modest guy and many people contribute to it. His writer's room is starry and brilliant and et cetera, et cetera. But who is telling us this story and what is that person's point of view about it all? And if this show were to continue forever with the Roy kids continually going for their dad's Lucy Charlie Brown football type setup and failing and then spending billions of dollars needlessly and getting up again – it could be incredibly entertaining. Oh, I mean, yeah. It is, it, is, it is sinful, honestly, I would to watch think about this Roman, cast dissipating. Yeah, watching Roman blow up a satellite could just, <laughs> you could just come up with variations of that but, for years. But that's not the show he's making because if it goes on forever, it's a comedy where these people are, by and large, sympathetic and heroic. And it was never that show. You know, not to presume people's politics, but I do think that um, Jesse Armstrong is not like, a Bill Clinton new Democrat who's just like, I like markets, but also equal justice. You know what I mean? I, I get the vibes that he's a little bit to the left of that. Uh -huh. And what I'm beginning to see the outline of is that this show, in addition to being the best comedy of the last few years, and in addition to being um, a compelling drama, is fundamentally a tragedy. And I think that that's, that was the shadow that was cast across this episode in a really really compelling way. And, and, and even just by way of pivoting, like I do think we should run through some of the big talking points, but yeah. in rewatching the finale of season three, which was all the bells, which is a staggering hall of fame episode of television that just gets better. The more times you watch it and the further we get from it in time, the line that stood out for me wasn't from that incredible, like almost Renaissance painting of Kendall in the dust uh, with his siblings around him. It came from earlier in the episode. It comes from when, when Logan and Roman take the speedboat to Skarsgård, well, I forget his character's name, Matson, to hit the villa where he is, right? And there, and Logan dispenses with small talk and the coffee immediately. And Matson's like, "Oh, getting right down to it." And 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 Logan's like, "It's all boring, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's all boring, except for this." And <laughs> that's so awful. You know, it's so just like existentially horrific. Yeah. Um, and, and now that we know the show is ending and they're still spinning and they haven't learned anything, it is all boring to them because this is the only way they feel anything, let alone familial love, but anything at all. Yeah. It's kind of sad, lonely, and pathetic. And I mean, isn't that I'm what, digging it. I love it too, but isn't that maybe the one of the things that Armstrong and the writers are trying to say about this pursuit of wealth in, in and of mm -hmm. itself winds up you wind up bringing it back down to what, what are these guys doing? Like, you know, the kids are trying to create this new media empire out of their own image that's flexible, that's moving quickly, that is everything that, you know, ATN isn't. 
And then as soon as they get an opportunity to stick it to their dad, they jump on him. Just the same way, in a weird, strange way, the kid's finally like acquiring PGN at the end of this episode. And he says, you know, congratulations on saying, saying a bigger number. It's almost a gift. It's, a, it's almost he's giving them a gift on his birthday. I, I can be proven wrong immediately next week when we find out any number of things could have gone wrong. It seems strange that Logan would just sort of acquiesce like that. But we can get into all of that. You want me to just break down the episode for a second here? Yeah, because also I, I, I believe, I don't want to step on your breakdown because this is what you do best. I, but I, you do a couple other things well too. You're Thanks. a jack of all trades. I was wondering, trades, I was like, am I, do I just recap? <laughs> you're a good recapper. <laughs> and as a podcaster, you're fine. You know, you're good. That's right. Um, <laughs> but the takeaway, right, the implication is that since season three finale, uh, in anticipation of the Goju. Gojo. Uh, Gojo. Yeah. Thank you. Soju <laughs> is the. Uh, you're, you're allowed liquor. to say Goju, but I don't think that that's what it's called. You know, you know, you have like an angel and a devil on your shoulder. Like that's what the angel is whispering in my left ear. And I won't on a podcast repeat what the devil is saying. Um, the Gojo is taking over the um, buying the bulk of the media assets of Waystar Royco, but that Logan is keeping ATN. Yeah. And I potentially the, then would add Pierce to his port, his media, his smaller, slim down media portfolio. I was basically trying to think about this, you know, in the same way where when Rupert Murdoch dissolved yes. Fox as a conglomerate and sold off the studios business to Disney, but kept the news arm and kept the New York Post and kept Fox News and all those things. Yes. So uh, that leads right into where we are when the season starts, which I think if I caught this correctly is about three months after the season ended, season three ended. I think there's a reference to having spent several months trying to raise money in Dubai and various other things. But the season four opener harkens back to the series opener in a lot of ways, because that was also a birthday party for Logan when they're playing solo, uh, mm. softball in celebration to the, in the first episode of the entire series. I was trying to figure out how much time has passed on succession. There's a lot of Reddit kind of trying to break it down. I think you could probably make sense of it. Sometimes it feels like they are constantly going through a presidential election but and there's another one on the horizon that Shiv references several times. But but this is the same one that was haunting the previous season. So, this is okay. the, the, the Justin Kirk character. Like the, I, I, it appears that we are headed towards that the election will will figure into the season, and that that was more like the anointing who might get the nomination. Maybe the, the primaries or something like that. It was the okay. primaries? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in any case, you know. So basically, the seat. This is essentially a negotiation episode. Logan is is stewing about getting older and and his deal with Gojo imminently approaching and the breaking up of his company imminently approaching. But he's uh, he's not being surrounded by the the ones he loves to hate. He's The kids are on the other side of the country and Logan is largely surrounded by like the senators, the Jerry's, the, the, the Franks of the world, Connor, uh, Tom. While the kids are off in Los Angeles plotting out this, uh, as Kendall describes it, Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker, which I guess is kind of just Substack. Um, media company called The Hundred, and they're going through all these um, you know, logos and giving like their, their feedback. And it's a great portrait of like, Roman is actually like maybe getting somewhat good at his job. Kendall uh, comes in eating what I imagine to be organic beef jerky or, you know, <laughs> s- some sort of acai bowl powdered into a bag and Shiv is 
playing both sides against the middle, taking meetings with, I believe, a Democratic presidential hopeful, Jimenez. Yes. Okay. So we got all that. To the extent that I understand uh, multinational media conglomerates and their mergers, like I said, I think Logan is planning to break up Waystar Royco, give this sort of bricks and mortar or pipes to Lucas Matson over Gojo, and then spin off the news division. And he wants to, like you said, buttress the news division by buying this Condé Nast-esque company, PGM, which is run by Nan Pierce and her kids and the cousins and all these other people who are kind of New England aristocracy. The action of the episode switches back and forth between New York and California as the two sides of the Roy family vie for PGN. And then, is it PGM or PGN? I think it's PGM, sorry. Uh, The transaction seems to bring the kids closer together, uh, which is uh, funny because it isolates Logan even more. He winds up having a birthday dinner at a diner with his security guard, Colin, uh, and really gives quite a McBain speech at this thing. Uh, it turns into a comedy of manners with Cherry Jones doing, you know, essentially having uh, each part of this family bidding on the company until the kids finally bid $10 billion for it. And Logan, he, he lets them take it. He lets them take it down. Uh, this episode ends with Shiv flying back to New York, seeing Tom very late at night, pretty much deciding that they were going to get a divorce, which Tom had spoken to earlier about, uh, talked to Logan about that a little bit earlier. Uh, and it's both a bittersweet moment. It's, it's you know, these two people kind of being like, Tom wants to talk it out. Shiv doesn't want to talk it out. Tom's like, if you want to talk it out, I also have some some issues I'd like to bring up with you, not just my infidelity. And then uh, they have a very kind of tender moment holding hands in bed saying that they had given it a shot. So that's more or less the action of the episode. We're going to get into a lot of the different details, but I thought it was, I thought that the, you know, especially in the Logan Colin moment, the sort of end sense of an ending is very much there. And I think you could also see that in the Tom Shiv divorce, that this relationship is kind of coming to a conclusion as well. Yeah. And I think it, it was really sad. Like, I think, again, I think that the, the, the minor key melody that is becoming dominant already in this season was really, really notable. And I, and, you know, you, to go back to the first point I made, like, I feel like that was telling him something, you know, I, I, I think that there are certain things that you can, even just in the construction of this episode that you can forgive now. And one of the things being, I mean, you named it, that the kids are really only motivated by fucking over their father. And he is really only motivated when they are fucking up or around to kick and abuse. I think, uh, the way the information gets to them which is Tom nervously calling Shiv to say like, you might hear about this, that I was seen with Naomi Pierce, but it wasn't a date. And then everything snowballing because that makes it clear what Logan is up to mm-hmm. that. If you were going to poke at a weak point in the episode, that would be it because Tom is many things, but I, he is also careful, you know? And I think that it plays into the larger scheme of like, what what is he more, more vulnerable to, personal or professional? But that was a little convenient. Don't so you think I'll, that this I'll, is all I'll happening on the same day? Push back a little bit there because you're right. Like and and there and Succession has a tradition of everything happening during somebody's birthday, somebody's party, Always, yeah. somebody's wedding, somebody's something. Like it's never just like a Wednesday and somebody gets a phone call. But Tom has now proven himself over the last two seasons to be a very savvy operator. Yes. And I, I think that he's the character I was almost 
the most fascinated by in this episode and the trajectory of this character over the last two seasons from kind of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern like background player who's there to eat the Ortolan, you know, the, say the incredibly amazing thing to Greg. The elder disgusting brother, if you will. Yeah, it's the, the, the senior disgusting brother to somebody who's kind of trying to find their center in this family chaos and the fact that he betrayed Shiv and the kids in the finale of season three, mm-hmm. maybe betrayed Logan in the beginning of season four here in episode right. one, but also seems very aware that his only usefulness to Logan is as a bridge to Shiv. Yes. So I, I, I agree with this and I'm glad you brought this up. I think that, um, cause that scene with him and Logan is my favorite of the episode. I thought that was incredible. The scene with him and Logan is incredible where he's like, I, I'm heartened. I'm heartened to hear that. But it's if clear we're that good, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. That they're not, he's absolutely nothing to him. And that's reminding him of that. And and so Tom's incredibly precarious position is consistent and makes sense that he would then just leak a little bit on both sides in the attempt to just stay afloat no matter what occurs. That that does make sense. I also think it's remarkable the way a character, to your point, who was drawn as more broadly comic. And not exactly a lick spittle, but definitely, you know, just ambitious mm-hmm. uh, at the very beginning. A little has come Has yeah. come to be, in many ways, the emotional center of the show. And partly that's due to the just, you know, God-tier performance by Matthew McFadgen that continues and only gets richer and deeper as these seasons go on. And he sinks deeper into the character. But I thought it was really noteworthy that for all of the circus and the, you know, the 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 way those siblings are together and the way that Logan isn't when they're not around and just how lonely he is to be on his birthday party begging for people to take shots at him so he can feel anything. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the end of the episode was very, very specifically chosen to have these two characters who somehow remain and their relationship remains the only or like sort of like moral or emotional anchor we have. And as I was watching that moment on the show anyway, and as I was watching that moment, of them saying things and evading and, you know, Tom emoting with his eyes and Shiv turning away when they lie down on the bed. Is this, I mean, I, I I didn't rewatch all three seasons, so I cannot speak to this, but it certainly felt like this was the first time two characters on the show have been silent together, maybe ever. And certainly in a long, 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 long time. The last time any significant character on the show was left alone, he sank to the bottom of the pool. Yes. Like yeah. the, the show turned that point you were making about there's always seems to be a party from a bug into a feature in the sense that they're so desperately lonely. And the only human connection that sustains them and keeps them alive is being abused by their quote unquote loved ones. Yeah. And they don't shut up. They cannot shut up. I mean, one of the more striking things about rewatching that finale was I, th- I think my memory of the Kendall in the dust scene was Jeremy Strong's astonishing performance when he's confessing what happened to the kid. And I remembered very strongly Shiv's like, and Sarah Snook's great performance as well, being like, I-, I don't know what to do with this. Can we call someone? I don't know. But I'm putting a hand on him, trying. I forgot that the most honest part of that whole scene is Kieran Culkin's performance when he's just like, you think you had it bad. I couldn't get it. I waited 45 minutes for a gin and tonic. And he pushes and it's inappropriate and he pushes and it's awful and he pushes one more time and he gets a laugh, you know, but that is how these people are to each other. They don't have another setting. And so for those two and for the episode of the last season, the premiere of the last season to end with that, they had nothing to say was 
really striking. That's a really good question about when are people quiet with one another on this show. I mean, I guess you could go back to safe room when Shiv and, and Kendall hug. I think that's when he's like, it's not going to be me. And he's, he's, that's when he's basically like Logan's ba- bag man for, for that stretch but, of t- time. But they pull away afterwards. Yeah. Because it's, it's too intimate. It's not that it's the only sign of intimacy. It's that they hold hands and then they don't do anything else, you know, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a different kind of intimacy that the show is, these characters are just absolutely mortified by and uncomfortable with. Um, let's talk a little bit about Kendall. Uh, (laughs) should we try being silent together on a podcast? Do you think that would work? Well, this is my question. (laughs) Uh, is there a world where we would have been right for the hundred? Cause I I think that we, I thought, I thought about this too. We combine a lot of the ethos of both the New Yorker Mm -hmm. and the economist. Now, I don't know Kaya, like where your head's at on this one. So it's it's a little bit difficult to say because we can't make any moves without Kaya. But mm-hmm. would a Petro state come in mm-hmm. and back a new media venture? It may be the right time for us to leave Bill behind. You know what I mean? Especially well, I, when we could have such stable management. I also think that um, the real slam dunk here is the combined age of all the media outlets that Kendall's referencing. Because when you get into <laughs> new, new, new media, you want to be as old as possible. In the sense that, like, you want to be like things that are only relevant to people our age and above. Well, so, you know, it's it's so funny you should mention that because yeah. I was like, for a second, I, I was like, oh, I wonder if this is a consequence of it taking maybe a year to make a TV show because would there have been an AI chatbot mm. joke somewhere in here? You know, like, would Kendall have already moved on to the newest thing? But in fact, I think Kendall probably would still be like, yeah, Substack, like the marketplace of ideas, well, like. Yeah, I think also that he's be- he's a Roy, which is in and of itself obsolete, right? Like I, that that's what made it so perfect because the idea of what innovation has become, which is I'm just going to take a bunch of things and put my arms around them and then sell it to you. Yeah. You know, like these companies especially in the last few years when when and I'm, you know, thinking about some great podcasts that Derek Thompson did recently talking about this, although he clearly wasn't the only one, but like money was cheap, so you could borrow stuff and you could like subsidize your whatever to get shareholder growth or get, you know, go public or whatever the case was. But like all these companies that were like, you have cookie pans now, but you've never had them be yeah. blue. What if we had took the middleman out of cookie pans? Yeah, and like just <laughs> straight to you and it's just like Wait, what? Like, it yeah. does look good on Instagram, but excuse me, I don't even bake that often. So I thought that was very, very, and also just by the way, just like I, people tuning in know we're going to be praising the show, but like that that was a bit that lasted the first 16 minutes of the episode and it was yeah. so choice. You but know, it was it so, was, it's essentially a one act play where dead on. if you took out the cutaways to Logan's party, mm-hmm. those kids do a one act play in that mm-hmm. living room which is such a fucking, you know, whatever the next level of VRBO or is it Verbo or whatever, you know, like I don't obviously frequent it. And like whatever the next like rent me a mansion in LA for two days so Mm -hmm. that I can lounge around in the living room and take calls from Dubai is the perfect house. It's the perfect setting. And those three performers primarily, although I got a lot of time for T, the banker, that guy was, (laughs) that guy was really good. That was like, Billy Magnuson is too big now, but like, let's have a lot of Billy Magnuson energy in this room. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, I, you could help me with this, but like, because as you know, and increasingly our readers, our readers, our listeners know, like I, I really do listen to a lot of sports podcasts because that's what I do when the Philadelphia sports teams are good. Yeah. Um, and 
these three just knowing how to play with each other, you know, because for all the the talk and the chatter and the just the like social media spackle about like Jeremy Strong acts in a weird way and some people think it's weird, throw all that out and the show doesn't work without him. Right. His energy, his performance, his choices, his commitment, its insightfulness about what makes this total fucking weirdo, made up weirdo tick is so crucial. And the, and what it, the way it opens up the field for mm-hmm. what Sarah Snook does and what Kieran Culkin does. So for them to play, to play with a feeling of freedom, right? Like it's just a, it's a remarkable offense, let's just say. And I, I love long running TV shows for many reasons. One of them is this, that when Jesse got his writers together and they're like, how are we going to start the season? He, he didn't have to really like script a whole new offense. He knew the plays to call. He knew who oh, to yeah. put on the field and let that go. And so I, I, I really like what you're saying about it being almost theatrical because, you know, there's the phone call. And then when Shiv returns, she grabs the bottled water and she's doing something very disturbing, which is that she's clearly flustered. Yeah. She and, has emotions. And not committed to this incredibly important but, media project. But more than that, she's like flustered in her heart, which makes, you know, which makes Roman very uncomfortable. And then it just sort of continues to spin out and the way they just build and build in the interplay. It's, you know, that's that, that alone makes this so much more delicious than any other show on TV. There are all these great moments from that sequence of scenes, I guess, but the, my favorite is definitely Kendall's self-awareness to be like, I've smoked horse, <laughs> so I, I need something that totally absorbs me because otherwise I spin out. And also there, there are three of them, their self-awareness about what it is that they do. Whereas like, it's funny that Kendall is kind of like the de facto presumptive heir and that he's the one who's made the runs at the king the most mm-hmm. when Roman obviously has this like strange natural ability when it comes to this stuff and Shiv is obviously like you know constant her head spinning all the time about like what should be the job to that like how to best look out for herself essentially uh it but, is kind of amazing how he writes these people so that they know just enough about themselves mm-hmm. to make a joke about it, but not enough to ever save their lives. But Roman's not a killer. You know, I think that was, you know, we, we sort of loosely, you know, we, we've done a lot of podcasting about the show. And I feel like one of the sort of ideas or, or theories that was tossed off was, you know, season one was Kendall, season two was Shiv, season three was more Roman. Um, that's entirely reductive because all three characters, not to mention actors, did incredible work in each of the seasons. But that the stuff that was going on with Roman at the end of the season, and again, I'm going to keep referencing the finale because I watched it right before watching 401, but his face when they are driving to stick a knife in their father, his face when his father says, come on, son, let's get away from these idiots. That played right into this episode. You know, he, he doesn't have the the killer instinct. He's just sort of a soft, broken boy. And that's that's something to watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. 
This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Let's talk a little bit about the the Logan side of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's start with Carrie. Who still, still a still a puzzle. Take some L's in this episode in terms of her treatment by the kids, but uh, is one of those? Yeah, exactly what you're saying. A mystery box of a character who has been essentially in the background of of this show for its entire run. Uh, I think. And I think she 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 really emerged last season. I don't know. And, I don't know when when uh, she debuted on the show. Well, I, I guess it speaks to my point, which is that it feels like there has been a Carrie in and like there's Jess and there's Carrie and there are these people who are kind of like working mm-hmm. in the wings of these main characters. And mm-hmm. she hadn't been elevated yet to a Frank Jerry kind of level. And now all of a sudden is a pretty important player in all of this. And I wanted to ask you whether you thought she was there mostly to tell Logan things and to kind of be another force in that room? Or do you feel Mm -hmm. like there's something there? Do you feel like there's a character developing there? Do you think we'll get some information about her? And to what extent do you think that matters? So, by the way, so Carrie has been in 10 episodes of the show thus far. She debuted at the end of season two. So you're you're right, essentially, that she has been percolating. And uh, we just, Zoe Winters is the actor. Yeah. it does feel interesting because the show does not pl- hide the ball. You know, it generally like within an episode there might be something going on that we're not fully tracking. But by the end of the episode that card is generally turned and we know where people stand or what's happening. The carry business has been sort of surprising because she she stepped forward and more and more forward and then there was the, all the business in the end of the last season when everyone was clucking about it and talking about it and is Logan sleeping with her and they started saying that in front of him and he would just sort of give them the eye and then when Logan is just like you need to get straightened out to Roman he's like fine looking woman is how he begins that conversation right yeah and then there's the whole thing in the finale about um Connor's checking the ingredients of his dad's smoothie and it's you know it's all like um like, like <laughs> Like, like sperm rocket fuel or whatever. Uh-huh. Like the idea that he's going to, this is straight out of like Game of Thrones stuff, but like make another heir. Uh, I think that that was a Bolton strategy, if I remember yes. correctly. Yes. Um, so it's interesting. Either there is some great there there and there's a mystery that was going to be revealed 
Or maybe the show is what it's always been, and we know what we need to know, which is that there is a, if you'll pardon the the expression, a succession of carries in Logan's life, that he always needs someone doing his bidding, but that her being the only person left at, at the start of the season is causing him to to realize what he's done because you know yeah. marcia has gone she's permanently shopping in in italy <laughs> yeah um, i was like is that is that a, uh, <laughs> is that a euphemism for had another show contract or you know that's the other thing about the show that's remarkable is that it is incredibly loyal and generous to the people that that resonate and that matter to the world whether it's um jay smith cameron and david rashi like being elevated to the main cast um but it's also not sentimental about people who's who don't have a function, you know, to be a regular cast member anymore. So, yeah. and they so can still go back Marcia. and grab Naomi. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing is that they're Cherry, Cherry, Cherry Jones showing up in the show is just like, man, that's awesome that they can just get probably for yeah, one like, scene. Yeah. Will we see Stewie again? I hope so. You know, like because he's a great actor and a great we character, and like it's part it's part of the world. So, and, and, but anyway, I, all of this was to say the Carrie thing as a red herring or a mystery I'm less interested in at this point, but I did appreciate, I mean, just the, like your father would appreciate a birthday call from you because she's reading the room and knows that he, she knows what's going on. Cause she's watching the show. Like we are but yeah. the way that Roman speaks to her is just so gnarly. I also was kind of jumping off of something that Carrie asks Greg in this episode is, did you get a sense for yourself, and I know that you're really good at, at dividing stuff like this. Is <laughs> random fuck like a family name? Uh, or do you think that got, you know, is that, is, where, where do you think her cultural background is? Random fuck? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I can speak from some familial experience that things at Ellis Island got real testy and bored, you know? Um, There's the Andy like, Goju that I was waiting for. <laughs> well, look, like when, when, when it's not Goju, well, no, okay, so what happened in Europe was they said Goju, they invested heavily in Goju stock and Jews went and uh, went to Ellis Island. And that's how you end up with scenarios where there's like a lot of people, a lot of people, okay, a small percentage of people in these American streets with the last name Greenwood. And then some of us are Greenwald. We're like the guy at Ellis Island was like, I'm going to translate half your name. Yeah. See how that fucking feels. So <laughs> yes, I, I, I do feel some ethnic kinship with uh, Miss Random Fuck, but I, I think it may have been just uh, an epithet. So Andy and I are recording this in a little bit of a vacuum, so we haven't seen like a ton of recaps or explainers about this. But uh, did you read Bridget Randomfuck as the Pierce who is at Logan's birthday party? Because isn't there a Pierce who's like tagged in a picture? Oh, uh, there's a reference to that because no, I think that it's more that so... You know, this again, this was beginning last season with with Comfrey, who I hope does return at some point. Great character <laughs> and great podcaster. I know you've always been a fan. Yeah. Um, Greg is kind of feeling himself a little bit and like maybe realizing that he can maybe do others due to his money or his insane height. You know, he can he can pull a different class of lady and mm-hmm. is just sort of feeling it a little bit, maybe along with his disgusting brother, uh, Tom. But I, I get it was just such like a beautifully constructed Greg plot that he would feel himself a little too much in addition to being felt too much under the watchful eye of Logan's CCTV cameras, which I think was a lie, but still is really it funny. Was, it doesn't matter. And then it Greg doesn't matter. like, we, we put our hands in each other's pants. We rummaged. They rummaged to fruition. Um, anyway, you know, there's just no like, way that woman could be a Pierce because she was like, and then I went up to Logan and was like, congratulations yeah. on the sale. Ka-ching. 
It's so funny. Yeah, they're, they're, but, but like one of the things that I, I think when I watch the show is who gave them the memo? Who gave them the memo that these are the $200 t-shirts you wear under a $500 blazer and these are the $200 t-shirts you wear as pajamas? This is where you hang your sunglasses. You know what I mean? Like dressing anonymously but extravagantly is what you do. You know what I mean? And and the, the, one of the many brilliant things about the show is that throughout its run, Greg has never gotten that right. Mm-hmm. There was one thing wrong that he wasn't told any of that. So he's learned how to dress now and now he's learned how to speak to people or, or, or maneuver or flirt. But fundamentally, he is a bull in a china shop and it's, it's just funny, man. His, his reaction when Colin's like, I got to get, get this woman out of here now. Mm-hmm. And he's just yes. like, we all must do what we are asking this. What does this he say? Is what he... you must do. Does he call it Abu Ghraib or Bagram? Or I don't want to see Guantanamo? what happens at Guantanamo. Yeah. yeah. It's rough. Here's my Tom thing. I, okay. I, I'm sorry to circle back to this, but I, I kind of had Tom and Greg it. together. Pull me in if I'm, if I'm going astray here. Sometimes we have talked about, or I guess lightly critiqued the show for there being soft resets on characters, especially after uh, emotionally significant moments, specifically Kendall, but I think the same applies to Shiv, where situations will happen. There could be a betrayal, a breakdown, a breakthrough, whatever it is. Somebody is like vulnerable, exposed, yada, yada. And then it somewhat feels like in the next episode that we see them because some time has passed or whatever, but also because it's convenient to the rinse and repeat nature of television that Kendall is not always going to feel battered and bruised, right? Like he's going to walk in and go, Oh, Romy. Like he is going to have his, his swagger back Mm -hmm. to some extent, even if it's empty. And I accept that. Mm -hmm. The thing that actually jumped out at me about this episode the most was that Tom was different since the moment at the end of episode yes, season three. Yes, I agree with this. And mm-hmm. that Tom, I wouldn't say was confidently navigating that room, but was the guy on the phone, was kind of funny with Greg in a way that was almost like, you small fool, like you don't understand the bigger game here, you don't do something like that, was clear-eyed with Shiv and was just kind of like, do we want to talk about who hurt who in this relationship? And seemed altogether a different guy in a way that made step-by-step sense. Like the guy who we see three months since the season finale is somebody who I think has gone on that journey. Whereas sometimes I think characters, Kendall, the kids specifically, will kind of go back to their, they'll regress to the norm of their character. And so Roman will go back to being a smart aleck and Kendall will go back to being the prince who was promised, but who was also full of shit, and Shiv will be kind of an operator. What do, do you think? I'm I'm out. Is that no, too out Pete, there? I think it's very perceptive. I think two things. I, I was just speaking about Greg and his usage, and as a POV character for the non ultra wealthy members of the audience, and how useful that was. I think secretly the truth is that Tom is the POV character because he has infiltrated this world and learned how to exist in it. But he is not of this world. And I think that he is profoundly in his Midwestern bones appalled by aspects of it. And most people do not change. Like that is true in in life and it's true in long running TV shows. But 
change is possible. Mm -hmm. You just have to work at it. And often it comes through some sort of emotional devastation or reckoning, quite frankly. And if you think about the the notes on the acting keyboard that Matthew McFadden uncovered during the scene where he, where he and Shiv are like, I would just be maybe a little less sad. You know, still one of the like Rushmore scenes, I think, of this show. Those notes have been available to him since then, I think, and are are increasingly prominent. And it's interesting. I think it's almost like he stands out as changing because the outrageous degree that no one else does. Yeah. So it's like the like the, he the, he's staying still for the first time, and the world's spinning away from him, and it, it's starting to feel like that. So. To me, you know, and I don't, I think both of us feel this way, you know, we don't really love to get into like the prognostication game because I don't think it's that kind of show. But I think the idea that Tom quote unquote wins is foolish because I think if anything, Tom has the potential of a victory of walking away. Yeah. Which, which is a different kind of win and a win maybe more in tune with the show that Jesse Armstrong is making as opposed to the 10 season, let's fucking have fun showtime version of the show that we have all been just relishing and enjoying or at least enjoying the potential existence of. I was thinking about him specifically when he asks Logan about whether or not breaking the the end of his marriage with Shiv would also be a problem for Logan and kind of compromise Mm -hmm. Tom in terms of his usefulness. Because when they're doing the bidding, when they're the, the kids are bidding against Logan and really the only financial conversation that they have is, how their banker would rather make $35 million in fees off of a major acquisition than $5 million in fees by doing like uh, like a VC round to start the 100. None of this fucking matters. Whether it was $6 billion or $8 billion or $10 billion, like it's just, it's not real to them. Or, or Connor's uh, 100 mil, but you'd still be rich, right? He's right. like, yeah, 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 of course. Right. But of $100 course. million but dollars be, less. <laughs> 100 less rich, but I wouldn't be in the conversation. Right. Um, there's stakes for Tom, you know? Like, this is like a guy from relatively modest, I don't know how modest, but like more modest than the Roys in Minnesota. I, I think it's been said, like canonically, that it's relatively modest, middle class. Yeah, and... Midwestern. I think one of the things that happens in the world of this show, but I think even in, in the real world, where if you have this kind of uh, political... Uh, not extremism. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like basically if you if you work at Fox and you come out of Fox now, let's just say, I would mm-hmm. imagine that Fox being your resume on your resume would maybe raise some red flags for some people and be, they'd be like, what do you, you know, so what did you do at Fox News? You know, so let's just say Tom leaving ATM would be like, it's not like he's going to go work for NBC and MSNBC, right? Like it's, it's, maybe he would, but like my point being is like Tom is in a situation where the things that he has acquired could be taken away from him. The kids live in a world where nothing they do can stop who they are. I think that's a good point. I also think it's worth saying that none of these people have any value to the world outside of their value to Logan Roy. And that's been made clear. Like, there's a reason why the senior circle are old. I mean, there's a reason why, why Peter, Jerry, and Carl are all getting up there. They're not getting golden parachutes. They're not going to work somewhere else, and that's reflected in their behavior. But similarly, like, the, the kids can make themselves feel relevant, but nobody's trying to poach them as executives. And I think the the best evidence of all of this is that, um, is a uh, Jeannie Berlin's character, right? Sid, I think like, yeah, she, yeah. she is, she is also, you know, she's phenomenal and amazing and a joy to see on screen. She's not a spring chicken. And 
that Logan is up late and she's her. available for a cell phone call being berated about he doesn't like the, the neck of the guy on his TV channel. I mean, that's He calls him a, job. Ball, a ball sack wearing a toupee. Yep. Yeah. And that's her job is to take that call and yeah. then to, to, to address it. That's what they all are. And that's what that, you know, that's what that kind of institution is. It's a, it's just, it's just rotten, you know? I mean, I, that's not new. That's not a new observation, but the kind of, the decay, I guess, is the thing you begin to feel uh, as we approach the end. So the, thus concludes most of the dramatic action of this episode. I was going to ask a couple of small, smaller note questions. So Nan Pierce is in Napa or Napa adjacent? No, Santa Barbara. They were driving Santa Barbara because I was wondering. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if like the light had been significantly changed by the time they arrived at Nan's. No, it, and it's also that's the only place where you can kind of see Ocean City and Vineyards. They're uh, up above Santa Barbara. Okay. Where I would like to be right now. <laughs> <laughs> um another question I had was And and wait, by the way, before you get off that, just yes, Cherry Jones is amazing, but like the way the show is such a brilliantly designed scalpel that it can do all the things we're saying in terms of what it's parodying the sat the satire the jokes but when it turns its attention to something else like the like inherent oxymoronic nature of feel-good liberal capitalism it's just a savage and genius where she's like oh i just hate this oh i hate all of this but could you go to 10 billion i mean everybody has a number you know and you and it's incredible when the show does these subtle little things to make you I don't know if it's empathize with Logan, but be like, well, yeah, if you're going to be in a shark tank, be a fucking shark. I wonder whether or not the do, bringing the Pierce, Pierce's back, these references to Gojo, I assume Skarsgård's going to show up at some point. He's in the trailer. Season. Yeah. But it almost feels like Jesse Armstrong wiping the whiteboard a little bit and being like, we're going to kind of get through all of the like l- lingering mergers and acquisitions stuff from the last season in the first episode. I don't know any, obviously like there's this, I don't want to get too deep into like future casting, what's going to happen on the show. But I noted with interest that this was essentially like the punctuation point at the end of a two season negotiation, essentially, because the, the Nampier stuff happens in season two, right? With Holly Hunter. And then mm-hmm. the, the Lucas Matson stuff is season three. You know, obviously there will still be some shoes to drop, and I have a, I have to wonder whether or not like Logan knows something that those kids don't when he gets yeah, them, uh, drives them up to ten billion, and then is like, congratulations. But also, he can't leave a scab unpicked, right? Like what he's feeling in the beginning is this is why I referenced that line from the season finale of season three. He's bored. He's deeply, profoundly, existentially bored. And when his kids blow it all up, his blood's back. His blood is back up, and. So does that mean the deal is going to go through smoothly? I would doubt it. Not right. not the not the Pierce deal, but the whole thing, the Gojo deal. I mean, I just feel like that's and again, to bring our conversation full circle, nobody needs my approval, but I feel deeply okay with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if this was just another season of 3 to 4 more to come, you'd be like, okay, at a certain point stop running towards Lucy Charlie Brown. Like right. we get it. Right. But no, this is this is the spiraling tragic Wagnerian downfall of something. That's always what it's been. And now we can really, really uh, rev the engine. The last thing I have here on my my list of questions for you is how come you haven't had a cardinal at one of your birthdays? It, it's embarrassing because, you know, it, in, in my defense, 
there were invites sent to Ozzy Smith and Yadier Molina. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it didn't. I realize now that's not what you were asking. It probably goes against the, the, car- the cardinal way to sh- to show up at your birthday, though. They should be oh, sh- shagging fly balls. Yeah, and they'd also just they'd they'd have to show up for everyone's birthday, right? That's right. Because because <laughs> the most beloved team, best fans. Um, who is the most culturally or religiously significant person ever to show up at one of your birthdays? Do you think? That's a good question, man. For me, I, I, I guess I could say a, a rabbi due to my bar mitzvah, but yeah. I don't think that really matters that much in the scheme of things. I think I've had largely godless birthdays, to be completely honest, especially in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would agree with that. My 20s were, were borderline pagan. <laughs> you know, like some mild wicker man vibes to my, my 20s. <laughs> Yeah, I think that tracks. That so tracks. we definitely burned some shit outside of bars in New York City when I turned twenty-three. <laughs> do you do you remember much of that birthday? I don't. That's a that's a legendary one. That was for another. what it's worth. We all had a good time at your party after you left. I got dragged out though. Yeah, you no, know, not you dragged were, out by security. Were, you, I was. I just. I you had were too carried. Many shots. Yeah, I. Tr- I had you were too many carried shots. by by friends, and then the next time we saw you, you were like Kendall coming back to the villa with the bottle of Lucozade, being like, uh, just, just a few too many Negronis. Nothing to see here. <laughs> I think I did go out for a beer the next day. God, being in your 20s is we incredible. Were right, Kaya? All stars back then, man. I think I had a Miller High Life the next day after like truly like having like an alien burst out of my stomach that night. <laughs> Look, we, we, were, we were all young once and now. And you, you, you guys know. wonder why I identify with Kendall. Uh, <laughs> what else you got for me? Anything? I got nothing. I, I think that um, it's nice when returning shows return as themselves. The, you know, there just wasn't, uh, there's no need. There's no need to be something else or to do a hard pivot or reboot or reinvention. So yeah. let's go. You know, I, I, I also think again, and we'll talk about this more as the season goes on, but things begin to fall into place and make sense retroactively, right? Because now if you're thinking of it as a four-part story, all of a sudden it's one story. It's not just, well, the season two business was about the Pierces and then we'll have a different business in season three. So it's just that it's it's a really cool, and I know we're going to feel sad. We're going to feel cheated. We're going to feel disappointed in some ways when the show's over and when it doesn't come back, it definitely is the end of something, not just in terms of this type of storytelling or the specific show, but it feels significant for it to be ending in a year when Hollywood is in such flux and the TV business in general. But it is really cool to know that, that this was this is planned and it's driving in a direction and it's driving there fast and we're yeah. gonna get to see where what we get to see along the way and where it's driving is uh, a Scandi noir about mm-hmm. uh, a, a woman detective living in in Copenhagen named mm-hmm. Bridget Random Fuck but with <laughs> the uh, how, how would they format that to make it like a Scandi show. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, you'd have to put definitely put some dots over some of the vowels. Like yeah, you would right. Definitely get a little... <laughs> some umlauts in there. Yeah. Okay, Andy, so we're going to be doing this Sunday nights going forward. Everybody should check it out. We've also got a, an abundance of stuff on the Prestige TV pod right now. Talking about Succession, talking about Yellow Jackets, talking about everything else. So lots of TV podcasting for you to uh, take in. Greenwald, great to see your face. Thank you, all, as always, to Kaya McMullen. And we will be back on Thursday.